being able to find things in the Bible is greatly enhanced by the divisions of chapter and verse. I know that you have found that to be the case if you've ever looked up anything in the Bible. Uh, Can you imagine what it was like to read the scripture as just a block of text? That's the way it was for years and years, centuries, literally centuries. Um, If you have seen pictures of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you will not see any kind of designation for chapters or scripture verses there because they had not been designated at that point, nor even were they designated a thousand years after the scriptures of the New Testament were written. It wasn't until the 12th century uh, that the idea came to the front that these could be easily, more easily referenced if they were divided into chapters. And then only 250 years later, was the scripture divided into verse. It's fascinating to think that all of this happened in order that we would be able to see more clearly and turn to these passages with ease. And yet it is somewhat an impeding of the flow of scripture I have found. And today particularly is one of those instances If we simply turn to the 10th chapter of John and read these 10 verses and let them stand alone, then we are in danger of not understanding the power of these verses, for they set within the context of a larger passage of Scripture and things that are going on that inform the correct interpretation of this passage. In fact, the 9th chapter tells very specifically about how Jesus healed a blind man. Do you remember the story of the man who had been blind, as John tells it, had been blind since birth? And there, when Jesus spat on the ground and made that paste of mud and placed it on his eyes, it was a miracle that he opened his eyes and was able to see very clearly. Anyone who was standing near Jesus and he, when this happened, they were overwhelmed with what had just occurred. Word circulated quickly to the Pharisees and the Pharisees, suspicious as they always are, began to think to themselves, all right, did anything really happen here? Was he really blind? And was he blind from his birth? They knew, just as the disciples, exactly what had gotten him into his situation. They knew that somehow someone sinned in order that he was blind. And yet as Jesus looked at this, all he saw was a blind man. When his disciples asked Who sinned, he or his parents? Jesus' response was neither this man nor his parents sinned. You see, this was the pharisaical way of thinking that had so become a part of the disciples that they could not help themselves but think the same way. Jesus healed the man. Even in the midst of the interrogation that the Pharisees were doing with the parents of the man who said, yes, we know him, he is our son, he has been blind ever since the day that he was born, they said, but we have no idea exactly how this happened. 
So they went to the blind man and they began to interrogate the blind man. And interestingly enough, the blind man began to ask them questions as well and interrogate them. As he was approaching them, they began to be defensive and they answered, you were born entirely in sin. Are you trying to teach us? Are you trying to teach us? This is the way it always is with people that have become more religious than they are godly. You know these folk, don't you? You know when church begins to mean keeping things the way they have always been rather than doing what is right in the sight of God. This is the bane of our existence. The tensions of religious and political upheaval in Jesus' day were no different than the tensions in our day. Jesus senses, of course, where this is all going and knows that he must be very inventive about the way in which he communicates with the Pharisees and his disciples. In our day, Psalm 23 is a favorite. I know that because, dare say I, that at every funeral that I've done over the past 40 years, that there has been at least one member of a family that has asked if I might read Psalm 23, either at the service or at the graveside. It is a favorite amidst our culture. It makes me wonder if Jesus thought about it this often, and if so, what he thought about that passage of Scripture. You remember it well, don't you? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Such a beautiful, calming influence on life, especially when there is turmoil It is a time for us to think of a pastoral scene, uh, the idea of a sheep that is out on a meadow somewhere beside some water that is stilled enough in order that the sheep would begin to drink of the water. It's a beautiful scene. I find it fascinating that that uh, many, many people have paraphrased this passage of Scripture. One of my uh, most recent favorites is written by Sally Fisher, who actually tries to keep the sheep, the sheep in the paraphrase. Um, when we are so tending to personify the metaphor, listen to this, it is very playful. I am a sheep and I like it because the grass I lie down in feels good and the still waters are restful and right there if I'm thirsty. And though some valleys are very chilly, there is a long rod that prods me so I direct my hooves the right way. Though today I'm trying hard to sit at a table because it's expected, required really, And my enemies, it turns out I have enemies, are watching me eat and spill my drink. But I don't worry because all my enemies do is watch. And I know I'm safe. 
if I will just do my best as I sit on this chair that wobbles a bit in the grass on the side of a hill. I just love that. Now, some of you may be saying, that is sacrilegious, and it is far from it for me. (laughs) It draws me in to the depth of this metaphor that we are given. And I wonder if it might not have been that Jesus was thinking in different ways. To be honest, about his disciples and to alert them to something that was deeper about the idea of shepherd and sheep He took this to a real-life level with them. There is a threat in Jesus' day and in our day of those with hidden agendas and ulterior motives, those who think that they have a corner on God and a corner on what it means to be church. It is a very dangerous, very dangerous thing You and I have focused over the past couple of weeks since the high celebration of Easter, considering the thought that hearing is believing, that that seeing is believing. We've begun to focus on the disciples who had the opportunity to see Jesus early on. And you remember how Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, put your hand in my hand and your fingers in my side and no. And he exclaimed, my God, my Lord and my God, as he stood before Jesus. And you remember the story of how the stranger appeared to those two that were walking toward Emmaus from Jerusalem and how they did not know who he was until later that evening at the meal when Jesus, this one who broke bread in front of them, they knew in their hearts who it was. And then he vanished mysteriously from their presence. These scriptures that remind us that seeing is believing. But John's focus is far more important than thinking that disciples are made by seeing. In fact, if we were to pay attention to what John was saying in his gospels, we would hear very clearly that he believes that hearing is believing. Hearing, not seeing, but hearing is believing. There is this connection with how well we do in our listening. I want to be a good listener, but don't ask Sue how good of a listener that I am. I want to be a good listener, but I realize that I'm not always good at it because I'm liable to distractions in life. I find myself thinking about so many different things that must be done. So many people that come to my mind are so many ponds to fish. All kinds of things distract me in life. Or technology distracts me while I am seeking to communicate with those that are close by, I will be in interrupted by a text or a phone call and have to think very carefully as to who has my attention. Have you ever been in that situation before? Has anyone at your table ever picked up their cell phone? Come on, you know they have. Y'all are getting nervous because you may be the, the ones. What I'm 
encouraging you to realize is that we can be as distracted from listening, not only to each other, but to, from listening to God in our lives. We become very hard of hearing, especially in situations where much is going on, where there's a crowd, and we filter out the clutter of noise that is there and as well filter out God's voice to us. This image of shepherd and sheep is about relationship. The sheep follow the shepherd and they know the shepherd. It says in the scripture, because they know his voice. I've never been a shepherd, nor have I owned a sheep. But I love the idea that this is what gives the sheep such genuine assurance. I do know that I need that assurance. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we discovered that Mary was at the tomb and how her life had become so chaotic? Her Lord had died, he had been placed in the tomb, but when she arrived at the tomb, he was no longer there. And her first thought was that the tomb had been robbed. And there in her sadness, there were angels, of course, that spoke to her. But there was this other person whom she thought was the gardener who spoke to her. And when he spoke her name, when he uttered the syllables of her name, she knew by the intonation that it was Jesus himself. Jesus speaks our names. He calls out to us. If we are listening, we will know in our hearts that God is calling us to understand the depths of what Jesus is up to. But the disciples did not understand. It's not clear here as to specifically being just the disciples. But it says that Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. It may well have been the Pharisees, but I have a feeling it was the Pharisees and the disciples. All of them were having a struggle with this metaphor that Jesus was using. While it seems so simple to us, we think to ourselves, how could they not understand that Jesus is simply saying that he comes into the temple, he's straightforward. When he does something that's good, such as healing someone of blindness, people will pay attention to that and will follow because they sense the presence of God in what has happened. The sheep know the shepherd. They know him by his voice. But they weren't getting that metaphor. And so Jesus uh, broke the rules. He violates the rules of grammar and begins to mix the metaphors here. And he begins to tell them, I am the gate. Okay, so you don't get the first metaphor. Let's switch it. I'm no longer the shepherd. I am the gate. I am the gate for the sheep. And all who came before me are thieves and bandits. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved. That brings us up 
against some things that I have felt across the years, and that is a part of the religious nature of being church, that we really don't understand the language that we use. How many times have you heard someone say, are you saved? Or you may have said it to yourself, are you saved? That's an appropriate question to ask, by the way, to say it to yourself. Sometimes I wonder about the way in which we use it on other people. But the thing that gives me pause is that we never stop to say, what do you mean when you say, are you saved? What does that mean to you when you're asking if someone is saved? You've heard me say before, I think John Wesley, instead of simply asking the question, are you saved? He would say, are you in the process of being saved? That gets a little bit closer to the original meaning of the word. But here in this passage, it's interesting that one of the translations that I read And it's not a paraphrase. It really is an interpretation of the Greek language in which this was set. It is interpreted, whoever enters by me will be kept safe. And don't you long for that? Don't you want to have a sense that you are safe with Jesus? I want to encourage you to listen for Jesus. Don't go through life filling it with such distraction that you do not know Jesus's voice. I believe that we do know Jesus's voice, that he is such a part of our lives. If we will simply stop and listen, that we will be able to hear him calling our name and in fact giving us instruction as to what it means to be his own. Our biggest altar call here at Pittman Park is when we come to communion. And I love it that there's a stream toward the altar. I encourage you to think today, what are you hearing? Is Christ's voice in your heart? Do you hear him calling you? This is the only way that I believe we will ever reach a place of abundant life.